0: listening to the London Review of Books podcast, I'm Thomas Jones. This week I'm joined by Erin McGlackey, a historian at Sheffield University and the author of Venice's Intimate Empire, Family Life and Scholarship in the Renaissance Mediterranean. She has a piece in the latest issue of the LRB on the Renaissance Venetian printer Aldus Manusius, whom she describes as the bibliophile's bibliophile. Though not only that... Anyone who has sat in the park with a paperback, Erin writes, has Aldous to thank for freeing the book from the library, the desk, the metal chain that sometimes bound books to shelves. Her piece is a review of Aldous Manusius, The Invention of the Publisher by Oren Margolis. Hello, Erin, and thank you very much for talking with me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to be back to talk to you about this piece.
0: Yeah, better than Florentine plagues we talked about nearly four years ago. Um, <laughs> you you call Aldous Minucius the secular patron saint of pedants and editors. He revived the use of the semicolon, which would be enough for my Hall of Fame on its own. But um, why else was he so important?
1: Oh, yeah. So he, I think probably the best way of explaining his importance is to say that he issued more first editions of classical texts than anyone ever before, but also anyone and this was from his press in Venice that he started in the sort of mid-1490s and continued until his death in 1515 so in that time he printed um, ancient Greek and ancient Latin text that had never before been printed at a printing press that had previously only circulated in manuscript. he really created a kind of readership for Greek texts in particular that hadn't existed before his press as well as kind of Producing books in new formats that changed what reading meant. And that's kind of my favorite part of Aldous is that in fifteen oh one he printed um this new edition of Virgil in this like tiny little format that you could take in a pocket and read outside. And in fact, people did read it outside. Um and so, you know, I love reading books in the park, reading by the pool. And I think that's that's Aldous. Aldous did that.
0: And he started this relatively late in life, right? He was in his 40s when he began, when he set up his, his printing press, and he wasn't born in Venice either. So maybe talk a bit about his, what we know of his pre-printing life.
1: Yeah. So yes, he was born in Bassiano, which is like a small town outside of Rome. And he had a really kind of traditional trajectory for a young humanist scholar. He attended lectures in Rome. Um, he eventually um started working for the um for the PO who are these sort of this uh sort of princely aristocratic family in Carpi which is another kind of small town um and he just it was a sort of average humanist trajectory they all kind of you know worked as um tutors and so forth to the kind of rich and famous to the the important men of their time um and most of them were happy doing that but then in the sort of late 1480s Aldous moved to Venice and he decided to become a printer. Um, and I think everyone who writes about Aldous, all of his biographers, um, anyone who kind of studies his beautiful books has to reckon with that question of like, why did he decide at 40 years old to abandon this trajectory um, that, you know, was so traditional for humanists of his time and to do something that was incredibly financially and also in a way, kind of intellectually risky and open this print shop. Um, and it's an interesting question. I mean, I think the choice of Venice makes a lot of sense. Venice was the center of printing at the time. Um, it had been for since 1469 when the first kind of print shop was opened in Venice. It was a city that was absolutely stuffed with readers and booksellers and printers and bookbinders and um, And so the choice of Venice as a place to open a print shop makes a lot of sense.
0: So the decision would have been that way around, probably, that he decided to go into printing. So off he went to Venice. It's not he went to Venice and thought, well, what shall I do now? Well, printing, there's a lot of printers around. Maybe I'll have a go at that.
1: Yeah, I think it would have been that way around. I think, um, you know, and, you know, Florence was a kind of rival sort of center of humanism at the time. They're actually the first Greek press was actually opened in florence in Florence. And so the choice of Venice was, I think, also to kind of strike out on his own in a sense and to kind of um, yeah, create a Greek printing press in this city where there hadn't been one. But it's not, I think, only that Venice was a city of readers. It was also a city that was deeply connected to the Byzantine Greek world. So Venice had these sort of overseas colonies in the Mediterranean and Cyprus and Crete. And a lot of, um, you know, after the Ottomans took over Constantinople in 1453, a lot of these Greek scholars kind of fled the Byzantine Greek world, what happened, the Byzantine Greek world, and came to Venice. So there were all these Greek scholars in Venice already. There were a lot of readers, there were a lot of presses. I think it makes a lot of sense that, that Aldous chose this for his kind of midlife midlife crisis. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. The, the, the Renaissance equivalent of buying a Porsche is setting up a printing press but um
1: <laughs> i also like i also i think sometimes that those lists um that are sometimes printed you know just sort of give you hope that you know you could have your great second act you know that uh, little well, tony morrison only started writing in her 40s or something and i think you know if you want to open a a highly risky intellectual endeavor like a greek press aldis is, is the one to kind of take as your model for that kind of midlife crisis Yeah,
0: will start a podcast <laughs> um And the the printing, I mean, it was almost, not quite heavy industry, but sort of heavy light industry, wasn't it? I mean, what was a printing press in 1500?
1: Well, it's so interesting, because one of the arguments that um, Margulis makes in the book is that Aldous sort of changed what printing meant. So in the beginning of his career, printing was really a kind of manual skill or manual form of labor. So the printing press was huge. And that was like physically enormous. And that was also a huge capital investment. But you also had to buy paper, which was really expensive. You had to hire people to work at the press, people to set the letter type, compose the text, check them over. Um, You had to probably one of the biggest outlays was to pay um, a sort of very skilled, highly skilled metal worker to actually carve the metal type for you. Um, so it was a huge outlay. It was a lot of physical labor, sort of skilled physical labor involved. But one of the things Aldous does over the course of his career is to kind of separate himself from the association of the press with a form of manual labor and instead to kind of create this mythology of himself with this kind of cerebral sort of like architect of what was happening at the press, that what he was really skilled at was a kind of intellectual labor, more akin to scholarship than akin to the guys at the press works, you know, with their hands all full of black ink spattered everywhere, getting kind of like dirty in the nitty gritty of actually operating the press. I think one of my favorite things about the press in, in this period is that the press shop was also where all of the press workers lived. So every kind of labor dispute that happens at a press in this early printing period is also a kind of domestic squabble in a way. And um, that's something that we actually have a great insight into for Aldous because Erasmus wrote a satire of what it was like to live at the print shop. Um, and he he wrote about, um, you know, how bad the food was and how they watered down the wine and they really penny pinched. And he sort of wrote about the order of, um, people sitting around the table and how, as you sort of went around the table, the food got worse and worse and the leftovers were passed down from the women to the press workers. And, um, you know, so it was, there were really tight margins. It was a tough business. Um, but, I think the way that that's refracted into like the dinner table and these kind of domestic squabbles is um, really interesting and like a great insight into into Renaissance
0: life. How did he become friends with Erasmus? How were Erasmus and Aldus friends? Was that just a network of humanist scholars around Europe who all knew each other or did it happen up because of the printing?
1: It happened, I mean, I think, so there was a kind of, a, a really important network of scholars around Europe at this time. And that's really reflected if you read Aldous' letters and his prefaces. You can see that he's constantly corresponding with scholars across Europe and they're sending him books and he's sending them editions. And um, so that is really important. Um. So Erasmus was in Italy and he knew of the Aldine Press and he was looking for a place to publish the second edition of his Adagia, which is a sort of collected um volume of um sayings with their kind of classical histories and references and mythologies um and he he went to Aldous's print shop as a place to work on the second edition and he ended up staying I think for almost 10 months to work on it and the second edition was a massively expanded version um of, of the first one and so he had plenty of exposure to the kind of daily life of the Aldine print shop and all of the scholars who gathered there um, and the apparently really terrible food that they served.
0: <laughs> but Aldous's most important relationship was perhaps with his his punch cutter Francesco Grifo. He was the skilled metal worker who cut the dyes for the for the type and all the rest of it wasn't it so but it wasn't an easy relationship.
1: No and in a way Grifo is a sort of genius in a way behind the press so Grifo cut, he first cut their Greek type, which was a really interesting kind of innovation. So, at the Florentine press where they were printing Greek books, they modeled the type on Greek epigraphy, so the kind of classical Greek inscriptions. But in Venice, with Aldous and Grifo, they decided instead to model their type on the handwriting of their own Greek friends. You know, they were in Venice. They knew all these Greek scholars. They were exchanging books with them constantly. And so they sort of modeled it on this, like, really beautiful, fluid, cursive, contemporary Greek handwriting. So it's a really beautiful font. And Grifo cut that, which was technically, I think, very complex. And then he also cut later um, what's called um the aldine italic which is um a kind of really spare, kind of fluid cursive latin type also incredibly beautiful um and that's what um they use to print these smaller format latin books as well but aldous and grifo got into a huge argument we don't really know what it was about um Probably Grifo felt really underappreciated because Aldous claimed, um, you know, all the glory for these new types. And sort of he wrote a, an epigram to his punch cutter. And he sort of, you know, said that Grifo was like the, the manual skill, but Aldous was the brains of the operation. And I think, you know, Grifo split. He went to San Chino where there was a rival press. And he actually printed there a second version of the italic type which is you know maybe maybe even more beautiful <laughs> um but yeah so he so he alienated grifo which i think is a yeah a sign of aldous's very difficult temperament i think
0: and you say in the piece that um there is an evangelical mission at the heart of aldous's prefaces so what was that mission
1: Yeah, uh, the Aldine prefaces are a kind of incredible way to understand what he was doing. Um, So before each of his texts, he wrote these prefaces. And in many of them, he is explaining how, you know, by printing these Greek or Latin texts, he is sort of saving the world from its current apocalyptic state. So he's writing against the background of the Italian wars, which are kind of really tearing apart the peninsula at the time. And I think you know, a lot of people wrote about the Italian wars at the time as as feeling apocalyptic or um, like the kind of end of days. But Aldous is saying that by restoring these works of Greek literature, of Latin literature, he's kind of contributing to saving the world, which, you know, is, I think Margolis writes about it as this kind of like mystery at the heart of Humanism, and it is true that these humanists thought that by doing this kind of reparative work, they were kind of restoring this civilization that had been lost and bringing its perfection back into being in the current climate, and that kind of through moral philosophy, um, through the kind of what um other scholars would call like sort of virtue politics of the Renaissance, um, yeah, and that there was something about kind of finding these, these ancient texts, correcting them, um, amending any parts where, you know, there had been holes eaten through the manuscripts, trying to think about what might have been there to sort of perfect these works, like to how they would have been at the time, was this kind of redemptive project. And Aldous writes about this in all of his prefaces, um, and it's like, you know, part of what all humanists were involved in. But Aldous is like particularly evangelical about it. And I think he he's constantly complaining about how much work it is. And so it's this kind of, <laughs> kind of this combination of like this real kind of evangelical zeal and the complaining, which, you know, when you read a whole book of them at the end, you just feel like, oh he's just he just seems like he was so unpleasant you know that if he genuinely sort of believed all this and went around you know you can tell why grifo left and went somewhere else i think
0: <laughs> and i mean is it possible to tell how literally he meant this idea of sort of in the apocalypse or is it a is it a sort of rhetorical exaggeration and a and in some sense metaphorical that we're meant by you know, if we keep printing books, we maintain this line of civilization, perhaps in inverted commas. The idea that, you know, ancient Athens has fallen, Rome has fallen, but we still have these texts. And if we keep printing them, then... Or, or was he... Did he literally think he was... I mean, was it the kind of millenarian? I'm averting the end times by printing these books. Presumably not, but... It's
1: so interesting. Like, this is... It's such an interesting question, because it gets to the heart of, like, what did humanism really mean to the people who practiced it and historians have answered that question in lots of different ways you know some people sort of don't take that rhetoric at all seriously and think this is just like a program of philology with like a lot of kind of heightened emotional language laying over the top of what was like essentially this sort of you know pretty straightforward scholarly program of grammatical reconstruction um and other people, I think, see it as an incredibly serious moral program of reform, and they really did intend, you know, to influence politics, the church at the highest level by bringing it back to, you know, these kind of um, austere classical sources. I think I would probably fall somewhere in between. I I actually do think Aldus meant it. I I I. Just the sheer level of work and commitment that he put into this project, you know, when he says it was a lot of work, you know, he complains a lot, but it's true, it was an incredible amount of work to trace down all of these texts, to, you know, hire Greek scholars to look over them, to, you know... To just edit even one of these manuscripts, you'd have to find all of the versions you could compare them to each other. It's an incredible, incredible amount of work. And he didn't do it for a one, he did it for dozens and dozens of texts. You know, so I think even to to kind of devote your life to that, I think I think he did mean it, but I also think, you know, there's a huge gap between what the humanist intended and what humanism actually was in practice and how. You know, the people who actually sort of read these texts and participated and sort of, you know, half hearted ways in the humanist circles, you know, they didn't kind of really think they were saving the world. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's a bit where you you quote him saying he worked so hard, he didn't, he didn't even have time to wipe his nose. And the list, I mean, some of the the list of... Of the greek writers that he printed even before you get to the, the Romans, aristotle thucydides herodotus aristophanes sophocles euripides homer demosthenes plato and in the editing i mean there's a the bits where you you know if there were gaps in the manuscripts which i think that you wouldn't this wouldn't be good editorial practice these days but he'd sort of fill in the gaps or would he do that himself and say what what would euripides have written here and would sort of come up with something which fit and did he do that himself or get help from other scholars
1: I think a bit of both. I mean, I think he has a really interesting preface that he writes more kind of towards the end of his career when he's complaining, yeah, again, about how people don't appreciate the role of the editor, that, you know, everyone fawns over the authors, but no one pays attention to editors who are like doing this really hard, hard and totally kind of unseen work. And he says, he sort of talks about this ventriloquism that he has to perform, that You know, in a way, it's harder than just being an author to be an editor like this, because it's not only that you have to kind of write your own ideas, but you have to have read so much of another author's ideas that when presented with a hole in a manuscript, you could conceivably kind of imagine what the author would have written there. And I think that is such an interesting part of what the humanists were doing. Like they were doing this kind of ventriloquism where they actually read so much of these authors and were so immersed in their world that they really felt that they could sort of speak through them, speak for them. I mean, Petrarch actually writes letter, letters to, to Cicero, like he writes letters to Homer and then writes letters in their voices as if they were responding to him. I mean, the idea of kind of making classics look again like it sounds, you know, like uh, whatever, they were just reading Latin, but actually they were kind of reanimating this world in a really interesting and strange way
0: is it isn't there a story about the the petrarch who well he's what he's 100 years more than 100 years earlier than than Aldus, but he discovered rediscovered cicero's letters as sort of and that's one of the sort of starting points right of the renaissance petrarch discovering cicero's letters but he had this really huge book of them didn't and it kept falling on his foot what's that some story yeah. about that
1: I love this story. So, yeah, I mean, it's like almost certainly entirely made up, but it's a great story. So um, he says he's every morning when he walks into study, he has like this huge volume of Cicero's letters that's like propped up. Like it seems like kind of holding open his door or propped up against the jam of the door or something. And every morning he walks in and it falls on him and it wounds his leg. And, you know, it really hurts. And he just keeps doing it over and over again until he's actually his leg is so sore and wounded that the doctors like wrap him up in poultices and make him stay in bed, and it's just such a you know I think it's such an interesting way of thinking about what the kind of psychic weight of the classics were for people who studied them and who lived with them so closely. Um, you know, that the way that they sort of think about the weight of the past is through the physical size of the book almost, that this that this heavy book could sort of fall on you and wound you repetitively, repetitively in that way. Um, and then he writes to Boccaccio saying, you know, it's those who are closest to us who like wound us most often. And I think, you know, for Petrarch, who literally, who sort of actually wrote letters to Cicero and then wrote, Cicero sort of, you know, wrote these ghostly letters back to him. I think he really did feel that, you know, he was he was sort of, yes, living in living in this kind of world in which Cicero could be reanimated for him, and you know they're constantly kind of dealing with the fact that they've that this is a lost world and like almost mourning mourning that while trying to reanimate it, and so then when Aldus makes these, you know, beautiful small books that you could read outside, I think there's a kind of interesting contrast there between the these incredibly large and heavy and serious volumes that invite a kind of like almost sacred relationship to them to these little books that you know you can take outside and read in the park read in your leisure time
0: yeah and fit in your pocket i mean the modern italian word for a paperback is a tascabula is a book you can put in your pocket so it's that same same idea and there's aldous's constant complaining but at some point he he described himself right as content to be unhappy I and mean, he quite enjoyed his misery
1: oh yeah i think he wallowed in it for sure um you know he's always talking about how he's sacrifice. you know one sac one person sort of sacrifices himself for the many he had like a complete martyr complex i think about what he was doing and saw himself as you know, he's always comparing himself to like Hercules Hercules or Sisyphus, and um you know he says when when this job of rolling these rocks is finally over, I will like relax on the garden with the gods or something you know he really saw himself as uh yeah as bearing the the weight of this humanist project and it is interesting in the sense that you know by doing the kind of in a sense the manual labor that was allowing these books to be read by many more people i mean in a way he was sort of right you know he's not a kind of famous scholar who's lecturing and you know writing texts that are being read in the universities and so forth like he is he is running a press and it was an incredible amount of work um and you know, maybe he would, I I don't know how underappreciated he was at the time. He always writes that people are singing his praises everywhere. So <laughs> I'm not sure if he was totally as unappre- underappreciated as he, as he was. But you know, I think um, I think you know. I'm sure any editor today can can identify with the idea that you know <laughs> editors are maybe a little bit the, un- the unsung heroes of the publishing world.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, like no, no question about it. The um, and he, but he. I mean, he had time. He set up this group or club. I mean, drinking society. I'm not sure what you'd call it, the Ne Academia, the new the new academy, he called it. Which sounds, you know, quite grand and Aristotelian or whatever, but or was it just an excuse to drink wine with his friends? Bit of both. Oh,
1: it's so interesting. It's so hard to say. So he yeah, so the the statutes of the new academy survive and it's supposed to be um yeah, like a sort of Plato's academy rediscovered in Venice held to the Aldine Academy. And um, he invited his friends over and they were supposed to all speak in Greek to each other. And if you didn't speak in Greek, you had to pay a fine and put it in this special little box. And when they collected enough fines, they would use that to pay for the wine for their next meeting. Um, You know, so it sounds, it sounds like a kind of pretentious drinking club to me in which they're sort of, you know, Speaking Greek, drinking nice wine. Um, probably, I don't know, maybe the more wine you drink, the less good your Greek is, the more you have to pay. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I think, you know, it does get at this kind of like social aspect of humanism at the time. And there were these kind of academies in in lots of Italian cities, um, that surrounded particular humanists. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes we like to kind of create a divide between like the kind of real intellectual work and the kind of social world of, of the humanists. But Actually, it's like so intertwined and, um, yeah, there's no way of really pulling it apart. Like, who you know, who knows what they were, who knows what they were talking about, but I don't think we can just kind of, say, you know, sort of say, oh, well, was just, just a drinking club because I think, you know, it was also, yeah, part of, part of their intellectual world too
0: so he had this this symbol of a dolphin intertwined with an anchor dolphin wrapped around an anchor was that like the logo as it were stamped on the spine of the books or on the on the front page of the books to to show that they were his
1: yeah not on the spine but um yes on the front page
0: and was was that something that he he invented I mean because now a publisher's logo and in fact that symbol of the dolphin wrapped around an anchor was used by Doubleday for many years I think they've now dropped the anchor and only used the dolphin but um was that something that all printers did as a way of saying this? You know, like the printer's mark, saying "I, I printed this one." Or was it that something that he—that sort of branding? Was that something that he took to a new level?
1: I think it was something that he took to a, a new level. But it—but certainly a printer's mark was like a common thing that print that printers used at the time to identify their work. It was also—I mean—it was a common thing that lots of um, industries use, Like bakers stamped their bread bricklayers stamp their bricks. There's a kind of really rich world of like maker's marks of various kinds of this period. Um, But yes, the dolphin wrapped around the anchor, I think, is special. I think because of what it meant, you know, it sort of stood for this um, term, Festina Lente, make haste slowly. Erasmus then writes about the emblem and this phrase, make haste slowly, and in a later text to kind of and sort of adds to this kind of Aldine myth of what he was, what he was up to at the print shop. So I think it does become, it stands for something more probably than most printers' marks did at the time. And it was also part of Aldus's um, great campaign against being counterfeited. So especially once he um, invented this kind of smaller format book, he just became almost instantly counterfeitable. And I think it's like only two years after that Virgil edition, he writes this warning to the printers of Lyon saying, you know, I know you've produced these, I think it's like nine editions that are supposed to be like mine. You know, you've got to stop doing it. It's it's, you know, effectively watering down my brand. He also says that um, you know, they look a bit like mine, but also, um, the the print is like is too french and quite ugly the capitals are ugly and i think he also says that the paper smells bad that they printed on in Lyon, like not like the sweet smelling paper they use in venice so you know he he gets you know really concerned with this question of um of fraudulent printing counterfeit printing which i think you know is 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 fair he did become really counterfeitable and and the dolphin and anchor symbol i think is kind of part of um part of that
0: and did the counterfeiters claim that they were, were they just doing the same thing that he was doing? They were printing these small, small books of the same text he was doing? Or were they claiming that they were his?
1: So they didn't, Um, they didn't actually kind of have um, the, the printer information. I think they were just printed without that information. But they were attempting to to counterfeit Aldine books, so to print them as if they were really coming from the Aldine press, because they there was such an obvious market all of a sudden for these Aldine, for especially for these small format books. Um, the first edition, that first Virgil edition in fifteen oh one, Aldus printed in a print run of four thousand, which is like a really big print run for that time, and there was an immediate, you know, people loved them, and so I think you know all of a sudden printers in Leon were thinking, well, we could like. Can make
0: a little money on that. Okay, that, that was amazing. Four thousand. I'm not sure you'd get a print run of four thousand for Virgil. Now, he, <laughs> maybe that maybe you would. Maybe that's too something I don't know. Too at the end of the world. We need to print more Virgil. But the, he he <laughs> also printed Italian writers, didn't he? He produced an edition of Petrarch. And is that was Petrarch already, had he already, as it were, joined the ranks of of Homer and Virgil, or did Aldous's edition sort of help? his canonization
1: that is such an interesting question so he i know he printed he printed petrarch and dante and i think also boccaccio i'd have to check that he definitely printed petrarch and dante in these small editions i think that you know both of them were kind of well on their way to a sort of canonization in italian literature um but i think what made it what aldous did was make it quite fashionable to have one of these little editions? So, one of the things uh, Margulis does in the book is he shows these like really beautiful portraits um, from the 16th century of men and women holding these little sort of Aldine-sized editions of Petrarch, um, with like the you know the with the volume opens so you can sort of see the beautiful italic, and I think you know he made it very. Yeah, very fashionable to sort of carry around these little books of love po of like Italian love poetry, um, amongst a certain kinds of elite, Make it fashionable to read outdoors, um, and that I guess was was new. Um, but I think the authors were sort of already well on their way to being to being canonized by the time Aldus got to them.
0: And presumably, they you know they make a, a perfect gift. They <laughs> would so say that sort of yeah.
1: Yeah, and and in fact, they were guests. I mean, Aldus Aldus gave them to political leaders, to famous scholars, who then wrote back to him and and thanked them. And you know, they have this really like charming, I charming um idea at the time that when you carry the book with someone, it's like you have them with you. And so whenever Aldous is giving them books, he said, you know, and then you can sort of because this book is so small, you can sort of carry me with you wherever you go. And you know, when you're to sort of political elites, he says, you know, when you just like have a little time off at the Senate, when you have a little time off at court, just just pop outside, you know, read <laughs> read a few lines of Virgil to just, you know, sustain and, and to sustain you through the day. And so like he has this like really sweet idea. I mean, the idea now that you would read Virgil like on your break is hilarious. But that I think probably did. It did make sense to, you know, princes at the time.
0: Yeah. Well, it's the equivalent of, you know, checking, checking Twitter on your phone, as it were. You kind of.
1: Yeah. Imagine, imagine if that was real. instead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, in the, in the piece, you say that Margulis's claim, central claim in his book, is that Aldus invented the idea and identity of a publisher, and it seems—I mean, you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I—I I think so. I mean, I think that what's kind of distinctive about Margulis's book and really you know, is kind of new about what he's doing is showing, you know, just how he kind of invented this mythology of himself as a publisher, and in a way how that was how that really was true. Um, I think this idea that when you bought an Aldine book, you were buying into a little bit of what Aldus stood for, which is kind of what Margolis argues You know, I think that's, I think that's undeniably true when you think about it. It's like, it's not just the aesthetics of the book, which were also really distinctive. So that beautiful spare italic, the really wide white margins, like they are just beautiful books. Um, But it was also that you were buying into a little bit of Aldous's kind of Evangelical project, you know, without having to do all the hard work, complain all the time, like you know, all the stuff that Aldous was actually doing, but you could sort of be part of that project. And you know, when I was sort of thinking about it for writing the piece, I was thinking about, you know, how true that is now, like how how meaningful certain form. I mean, you know, to maybe a small group of people, but how meaningful certain forms of kind of literary marketing and publishing are now. Like, like the example I use in the piece is Fitzcarraldo Blue, like that that is such a meaningful shade of blue, you know, maybe not for everyone, but for a certain group of people, that is a very meaningful shade of blue. And I think, you know, Aldous was doing something really similar and was maybe the first really to do it. And I think, um, you know, that's why I think he's sort of the bibliophile, bibliophile, if you love books and publishing, and if they mean, you know, more to you than just the words on the page, then that is, that is like really an Aldine project.
0: Yeah, And then the, this other book, which doesn't quite fit with those other ones. Although maybe it does. I don't know. The, the Hypnorotomachia Polyphily, if that's how you pronounce it, which was quite a different project from a new edition of Virgil or Plato or Petrarch.
1: Yeah, it's such a mysterious book. Um, so the Hypnerotomachia Polyphily is a mouthful. It's the strife of love in a dream is like how the English translation usually goes. So this is it's so fascinating. So the story is this kind of surreal sort of medieval romance type story where the hero falls asleep and has like this sort of dream within a dream where he's like chasing this woman that he loves through this kind of mysterious landscape. Um, And it's as with all medieval romances, like plot would be too strong of a word you know he's sort of it's like very sort of meandering and um hard to follow and um they run through they sort of he chases her through these like mythological landscapes and these sort of um remnants of a classical civilization which is now gone so it has like this really kind of haunting atmosphere um and so they come up you know to these like beautiful and really interesting classical buildings including some like Egyptian um hieroglyphs and things like that Roman sort of classical Roman buildings and the story is told in I think it's like 170 woodcuts and in the text um and there's a really complicated interrelationship between the two the text itself is in this mix of Latin Italian and Greek so it was you know it was arcane even at the time, like not many people could read it. It was a sort of puzzle for scholars and the story is sort of told more clearly through the images. Um, Yes. And Alice printed it. And it's like, it's, I mean, it's a mysterious book anyway, because you know, who could read this language, who could understand this like incredibly convoluted story? Like who was it even for? Um, No one, the authorship is unclear. Um, historians sort of think that they know who wrote it they think they know who produced the woodcuts Aldous does say that he printed it like it is it does say that Aldous printed it but it's underneath the list of errata it's like almost like a joke um so it's like this incredibly mysterious but also incredibly beautiful book um and I think (laughs) um Margolis calls it the pornographic Pepsner, and I think that is, like, a great way to describe it because on the one hand, they're going around talking about all these classical buildings and sort of their precise measurements, exactly how they were constructed, like, it's this really kind of antiquarian interest in the classical landscape, and on the other hand, there's, like, all these, like, nymphs having orgies, there's, like, this kind of ritual to Priapus with, like, this absolutely, like, enormous penis on a altar, which was actually one of the most defaced images of the Renaissance. Like, it's hard to find a copy of the Hypnara where that hasn't been a, um, effaced in some way. Um, so it's just, like, such a confusing and mysterious book anyway. And then to put it within Aldus's overall career is equally confusing because, you know, he's printing these really serious Greek texts. Like, why did he bother with this um really arcane project? I
0: um, mean, is there any... Is there any chance that he wrote it himself?
1: No, <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> um, I so I think I think there is a kind of his, his consensus that it was written by, I believe, a Dominican monk in Venice. Um, you know, which what he did with nymphorjies, who knows? But um, yeah, I don't I don't think Aldous wrote it himself. But it is interesting that he published it. I mean, um, Margot, so a previous biographer of um. Alda sort of said, well, it's like this like weird aberration and sort of tried to downplay it. Margola says it was actually where he started to work out this idea of Festina Lente and his kind of motto about make haste slowly um, and where he starts to you sort of begin to think of himself more as this kind of cerebral architect of the book rather than a kind of manual laborer, and places it in that kind of um, yeah, trajectory of his career, which, which I think makes a lot of sense.
0: And would the, the woodcuts unusual for his books? I mean, would the did his editions of of Virgil and Homer have illustrations?
1: I don't think the classical text typically did. There he did, um, just after the Hypnera Tamachia, he printed an edition of um Catherine of Siena's letters, which had some interesting woodcuts in them. Um, but no, not typically. The the Woodcuts from the Hypnara were produced by Benedetto Bordone, who was like a very well-known miniaturist in Venice at the time. So who worked extensively in manuscript and then in print to produce these woodcut images.
0: Yeah. And that, the the, the motto, the festina lente, the hurry slowly. And that, and that's represented in in the logo, right? So the anchor is the, is the slowness Mm -hmm. and the dolphin is the, is the hurrying. So the, I don't know. I don't know what it means that Doubleday have dropped the anchor. They're just, <laughs> just hurrying now. <laughs> best not, to think, best not to think too hard about that. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he died in 1515. So, when mean, he's about what, about 60? After uh, 20 years of very hard work.
1: Yeah, Yeah. around six sixty five. I guess, yeah.
0: And he wanted what is this right? he, he wanted to be buried in Carpi?
1: Yes, that's right. So, He died. There was a funeral for him in San Patanian Church. And um, we have one of the orations that was given there by another scholar in Venice, Dagnatio. And he sort of he says, you know, Aldous basically worked himself to death. Like, so he's kind of like, you know, after all of this complaining and the preface of for 20 years, finally, his friend's like, yeah, he did. He worked himself to death. Um, And he was laid out in, it's a beautiful image. He was laid out in the church, like surrounded by piles of his books. Um, And then he wanted his body to be sent uh, back to Carpi to be buried in a tomb there, which is where he owned land and he had this kind of long connection there with the the PO and so forth. But for kind of complicated reasons to do with the Italian Wars, he his body was never sent back to Carpi, and probably lost um, or buried in you know a, a tomb that's now forgotten or or unmarked. Um, yeah, so it, in a, like I think Margolis writes really beautifully about. You know, how he was sort of a man in a sense without a place and, you know, that this kind of temporary monument of books that was like built to him and in in the church at his funeral is kind of really in a way opposite for his for his life Um, and Erasmus wrote about how he created a library without walls, you know, with printing all these books. And so there is a kind of like placelessness to Aldous to the, to the publishing project, which I think is kind of mirrored really beautifully in, in his death. um, And then, you know, of course I, like I sort of closed the piece by talking about um, that Thomas Moore, the books that were in Utopia were Aldine books. So, again, it's like a kind of place, a placeless legacy in, in a sense, you know, because obviously utopia is no place at all.
0: Yeah. And as you imply in the piece that book aesthetics now are still Aldine, that if you read a, a paperback back with, with a distinctive brand identity and and wide margins, then you're reading an Aldine text.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think that there is like a this really interesting continuity with what he did. I mean, I think... You know, it's it's maybe harder to see in his Greek scholarship because that's not so much a part of our our world these days. But it's you know people say often you know he invented the paperback, and you know in a way that's true. He did shrink the book. He took it out of the library. He made it fashionable to read outdoors. He made it fashionable to carry around, you know, beautiful little books. Um, he associated like a particular aesthetic with a particular publisher, which you know I think is really resonant now and um. Yeah, so I think whenever you sort of read a book outside or on the tube or by the pool, like that is, a, that is an Aldine legacy.
0: Erin McLucky, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You can read Erin's piece in the latest issue of the LRB, dated the 14th of December, along with Julian Barnes on Monet, Neil Asherson on East Germany, and Colin Burrow on Zadie Smith's new novel. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilborn. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you for listening.